Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox, exploring the ideas that will change the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Uh, today's episode is going to include uh, associate professor and author uh, Matthew Sears. I'm excited to have you here with us, man. Uh, you uh, are currently at the University of New Brunswick. You're in the classics department. Please correct me if I get any of this in uh, any of this wrong. Uh, and you are a graduate of Cornell University. Can you give us a little bit more uh, about you and your history outside of? The education field? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, from Fredericton, New Brunswick, originally, so I've actually come back home uh, to uh, to work. Uh, so I'm a maritimer. Uh, lived a few years in Vancouver, uh, growing up. So I've I've seen two sides of the country, uh, and my wife's from uh, Ottawa, so I get my uh, you know central Canada from there. Nice. Um, I spent a decade in the United States uh, after I graduated from my undergrad. I went to uh, Cornell for my PhD and then taught at a small college near Indianapolis uh, as my first uh, gig outside of my PhD. And then I came back in 2013 uh, to uh, New Brunswick. So I've been here for five years. Uh, outside of doing uh, the classics thing, doing the ancient history thing, which of course takes up a lot of my time, and doing the Twitter thing, which takes up <laughs> too much of my time. Uh, I play guitar uh, nice. in a few groups uh, around town, and uh, uh, that's kind of what I'm into these days uh, in, in getting too worked up about different pieces of guitar gear uh, and, and uh, nice. figuring out new songs to play and things like that. So that's a little bit of what I do. I've got a couple of kids, uh, you know, that uh, play soccer and keep me busy. So that's, nice. that's a little bit about me. So what inspired you to go into into the classics? That's a great question. Um, I was going to do a Bachelor of Science. Um, so I had signed up for the Bachelor of Science program at the University of New Brunswick when I was in grade 12. And it was my, my parents, actually, that said, you know, you really like history. Like, I've, I've always, you know, read about it. I would do things like watch Braveheart, for example, in like, junior high, and then take out a bunch of books from the university library to read more about like William Wallace and Robert the Bruce and that kind of thing. Uh, and so they said, why don't you, there's this new program at uh, UMB uh, that's a combined arts and science program. Uh, so a BA and a BSc. And so why don't you sign up for that? And then you can spend your first couple years deciding if you like both or if you like one or the other more. I fully expected to do either biology or biochem. And I still love science, still love math. Uh, and all those things. But in my first year, I took a couple of electives in arts, uh, one on, as an introduction to the ancient Greeks and one uh, on the ancient Romans. And it also happened to be the year that Gladiator came out in theaters. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to say that Gladiator wasn't one of the reasons I thought ancient Rome was pretty cool, but it certainly was. Uh, and so at the end of my first year, when it came time to um, to pick which sort of direction I was going to go. And I went and asked the people in the classics department, because I really liked ancient history, not just history in general, but especially Greece and Rome, and said, how important is it to, to learn Greek and Latin uh, in addition? To that? And they said, if you want to do it seriously, it's absolutely essential. And those are the kinds of courses that take a lot of time. So I decided I better switch full-time into arts. And at the end of my second year, I went to Greece for the first time. I went on a travel study with uh, my professors from UMB, and after that, that was it. I decided that this is what I wanted to spend my life doing. So I was been I've been very fortunate so far uh, in getting to travel 
uh, to the, uh, Greece and Italy, Turkey, places like this, uh, and take students there myself now. Uh, and uh, I love the history, but I also love the place. I love eating. And uh, Greece and Italy have some of the best eating around. Uh, you know, all of those things uh, draw, draw me into this field. Wow. Um, when you go through Greece, do you, for you as a professor of that, does, uh, do you see the lineage of all of it, how it's grown to where it is now? That's actually one of the most interesting things uh, to study when you go to a place like Greece, um, because it's a living country. I mean, it's a place where people live now uh, in amidst all these ruins and museums and images from classical antiquity. And so you can, yeah, you can see the way that the modern Greeks really lay hold of, um, you know, what they see as their heritage in things like the Parthenon and, and, and different, uh, you know, tourist destinations like that. But it's also interesting to see how, you know, that blends in with things from the 19th century uh, and, and uh, you know, the 17th century, especially. If you go through Greece, there's castles everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's what impresses people in addition to the ancient stuff. You see all these medieval, like Frankish and Ottoman fortresses. And, and so just to get a sense of history didn't stop uh, at the end of the classical period, and it didn't sort of start up again, you know, rather recently. It's been going the whole time. And so one of the privileges of going through a place like that is being able to see the different ways that history kind of ebbed and flowed and, and different people were in charge and uh, different styles of building were, were popular uh, and to see just layers of that still uh, still on the ground and, and, and just blending into, you know, like a fast food restaurant, uh, you know, <laughs> sitting right beside it. It's, it's kind of a nifty, uh, a nifty uh, juxtaposition. So um, when you look at Canadian history, uh, you, do you do you do the same thing when you look at, at Canada today and, and look at where we are in our growth in that way? That's a good question. Um, you know, and until recently, I was one of those people that that you know thought Canadian history was boring. Mm -hmm. You know, I, when I took it in school, you know, I thought, uh, why are we learning about this when it's so much more? You know, other than say, you know, World War One and Two, which were you know neat uh, when you're in high school. I always thought Canadian history wasn't, you know, wasn't quite that interesting. Um, but when I got back from Greece the first time, I took up a job in Fredericton as a tour guide in the summer. I wore a British red coat, uh, you know, from the 19th century and uh, gave tours of the historic center of the city based on this military garrison that the British had set up. Uh, you know, and, and at first I kind of rolled my eyes. I just seen, you know, palaces that are 3,200 years old uh, and trying to get excited about things that are 150 years old took a little little bit. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, in New Brunswick and in the on, on the East Coast here, we get a lot of interesting layers because right across the river from where I was a tour guide, there's the remains of a French fort uh, that was built on the site of where uh, the Wallustaqui people um, had settled, you know, thousands of years before. And then we had British, you know, a British garrison on the other side of the river after the French had been defeated by the British. So you get, uh, you get to see that the, the ways that these different cultural traditions, um, were in conflict with each other, uh, the way that, you know, sometimes you can see them existing in the same space. Uh, and so now, uh, you know, I, I'm struck by you go through downtown Fredericton even, and you see the legislature and it has, Britannia, the, the symbol of Britain on it. And it's all very British and it's very 
while using classical forms of architecture. Uh, and so that's interesting to think about why are we being British like that? What are we trying to convey? Uh, and then more recently, I've been thinking and, and, and struck a lot more by uh, the first peoples uh, mm-hmm. that, that lived in what we now know as Canada. And uh, in this area, it was the Wollastoqui, the Mi'kmaq as well, close by. Uh, and, and thinking about ways to remember and celebrate and think about their contributions. So we're talking about in New Brunswick, renaming the St. John River um, back to Wollastook. Wow. Which is what uh, was the Wollastoqui, uh, mm-hmm. we used to call the Maliseet, uh, what they had as the name for the river. So should we bring it back to that? You know, th- so those kinds of things are interesting to think about in, in Canada too. Anywhere you go, there's going to be those layers of history. Yeah, and I, I just saw that was recently announced that there's the possibility that we're going to have another stat holiday um, right. based on uh, reconciliation and, and working towards reconciliation. I think that's an absolutely in, incredible idea for us to be looking at as a country. Uh, as you, uh, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this in any of the emails, uh, I'm currently living in Fort McMurray, which is a Canadian city that in a lot of ways uh, doesn't have the depth of culture that, right. uh, that many other Canadian cities do. And a lot of people who live here are from the East coast. Uh, and yeah, they, a lot of New Brunswickers. In oh, there's a ton of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they speak of the, the heritage and the depth mm-hmm. of beauty that is in East coast that we may not see over in the Prairie provinces because of our short term history. And then that's when, you know, when we speak to you about Greece, Right. And the depth of history that a place like that has, which mm-hmm. is something completely uh, unimaginable to really to Canada, you know, um, you know, uh, aside from the Aboriginal peoples, uh, we, we haven't had, um, you know, that much of a, of the modern history here. Um, so when we look at Greece, that's, I mean, the reason that we're talking today, the, the thought that both of us, I think, had, what are the big ideas of ancient Greece that you see are still relevant to us today in Europe, in, in Canada, and, and around the world? Well, you know, it's a great question, and, and obviously something that I need to be concerned with, because this is my, my job, mm-hmm. is, to, is to teach ancient Greek and Roman history, uh, I focus on Greece with my own research, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and and part of that is trying to attract students, uh, convince them, convince their parents, um, convince funding agencies that this is not just sort of an interest. I mean, most people think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty easy sell to say, you know, gladiators and the Battle of Marathon and things like this are are interesting and people are into you know into it, uh, but to convince people. Uh, which what I believe is that it's also useful and relevant um, is a is a harder thing to do. And, mm-hmm. I, and I try to do that, you know, pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, and why do I think it's, you know, what, what ideas do I think are important for us? And you mentioned, you know, North America and Europe, uh, what, what most people would call the West, the Western yeah. world. And and we, we think about, you know, the, the Greeks being kind of the beginning of Western civilization. Um, in uh, the early 19th century, the famous poet Shelley uh, said, we are all Greeks. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that that people living in 19th century England um, were, sent, were just Greeks living in a later period, that, it, that all their religious ideas, all their art, all their architecture, their literature um, is all essentially based on what the Greeks did. Um, and that was generally agreed upon 
uh, in the Western world, what we would call the Western world, until very recently. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, there's a there's a, a legitimate reason to say that you know the Homer's Iliad, for example, really is a foundational work of literature that all later literature in the West uh, it, it owes a lot to, for example. Um, but more recently, we've been talking about the Greeks as 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 someone uh, yes that are influential, but are also very different. Uh, and and sometimes it's important to look at how the Greeks thought differently than us, mm -hmm. and we can misinterpret them if we just assume they thought exactly the same way as we do, as if all of us think the same in the first place. Um, you know, so that people are complicating that story. But I mean, if you look around, I, I mentioned the legislature in New Brunswick. But if you, any legislature in Canada is typically going to have something like a dome yeah. structure. Um, which is, you know, essentially a Roman architectural feature, then later revived during the Renaissance. Um, you're going to have like Corinthian columns, these fancy columns with, you know, leaves on the top as their capitals. You're going to have, um, you know, classically inspired architecture. And that's very deliberate. Um, we say in Canada, we live in a democracy. Uh, and what we, and I'm sure we'll talk more about mm -hmm. this uh, uh, today, but the idea of democracy being the people somehow rule. Uh, instead of you know kings or something like this, and in in Canada and most Western we can say countries and most other countries that call themselves democracies, that is because we vote. We vote yeah. for leaders, and if we don't like them, we can vote for somebody else. Uh, and so we see that that comes from the Greeks. Um, philosophy, uh, it's a Greek word, <laughs> means the love of wisdom. Um, but a lot of our philosophy is based on what people like Plato and Aristotle uh, first started asking. In ancient Greece. So, um, you know, those are very influential still today. But I think what's more interesting is not just, and, and many people have done this for a long time, traced, you know, how the ancient Greeks influence us today, how their ideas are still popular. Um, but it's also interesting and important, I think, if you want to get to the truth of things and think about things more carefully, to think about how they're different. Yeah. I mean, who influenced the Greeks? They didn't come out of nowhere, uh, for example. And when the Greeks say democracy, um, are they talking about the same thing that we mean when we say democracy? Uh, and Or is it a lot of cosmetic similarities? So we, we yeah. put Greek-looking things on our buildings to make it look more Greek, but does that kind of cover up some important differences we might have uh, with the Greeks too? Fair enough. So who did influence the Greeks? Right. Well, there's, uh, you know, so I brought up Homer's Iliad, right? Yeah. Uh, so the story of Achilles and mm -hmm. uh, Hector and, and, you know, Agamemnon, all these great heroes uh, in the Trojan War. Um, and most people consider this the first work of literature in what we would call the Western canon. This mm -hmm. idea of there's this set group of books or works that everyone has to read. And it would mm -hmm. go from there through Shakespeare, through you know, to kill a mockingbird, for example. Um, now, Homer didn't invent uh, epic stories, mm -hmm. stories of heroes uh, himself. I mean, now more people are reading things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, uh, well, the, the version we have is Babylonian, uh, but it comes from an even earlier Sumerian epic that's a couple of thousand years older than the Iliad. Uh, and a lot of the same themes resonate. And uh, scholars now are pointing out the the Near Eastern influences on Homer. So he probably lived in what is now Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so not in what we consider Greek Greece, because Greeks lived in Turkey as well. 
and was influenced by Assyrians and Babylonian ideas and other uh, Near Eastern ideas uh, to come up with uh, his own version of heroic stories. Uh, similarly with philosophy, philosophy started uh, in the Greek world in what is now Turkey. Um, but it happened there, and, and we would think it happened in Athens, but actually Athens was kind of a late bloomer. Uh, it happened in Turkey because they were encountering different non-Greek cultures and there was a great blending of ideas that the Greeks maybe took in a different direction, but it certainly happened there for a reason, and that's because there was a, a bringing together of different cultures um, in a new way. So um, do you think there's a particular reason why we like to look at the Greeks as the basis for a lot of these ideas? I, well, you know, it, 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 it stems from the history of classics as a discipline. Mm -hmm. um, and, and nobody really studied the Greeks and Romans in the way that classicists do now until, you know, the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, or, you know, the, the 15th, 16th century, in, especially in Italy. Um, and once they did that, the Renaissance, I mean, in French means a rebirth. Uh, and and it, the rebirth refers to a rebirth of the classical ideals. Um, so the great ideas and architecture and art and everything of classical Greece and Rome. Um, and it was then that we started talking about the Dark Ages. So that thousand years between the fall of the Roman Empire in the West and the Renaissance were then seen as this one great, long, stagnant, dark, violent, you know, people didn't bath, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and it was when Greece and Rome are rediscovered and we started making things with domes again. And we started writing poetry that was like classical poetry. Um, we started painting, like Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel with bodies that were inspired by Greek and Roman sculptures that had been started to be collected in, in Florence and in Rome. Uh, and then it became sort of even more intense in following centuries when the Germans and the English kind of got a hold of Greece and Rome and they started seeing the Greeks, um, you know, and, and, and we can say this, they started seeing them as white people that were like them mm -hmm. and weren't near Easterners. They weren't Semitic peoples like the Phoenicians or the Hebrews. Um, they weren't Arabs. They were just basically Rome, uh, Germans and Englishmen uh, living, you know, 2,000 years ago. And, and, and so it was a very ideologically charged decision to focus in on Greece and Rome. And until very recently, uh, scholars thought about Greece uh, what we, in a way that we call the Greek miracle, as if all of a sudden in the classical period, the Greeks just invented all of these things out of nowhere, invented architecture, invented philosophy, uh, invented poetry, invented literature. And and that's, that's, of course, not true. I'm not saying that they didn't have remarkable achievements in those fields. Uh, but it was sort of the way scholars talked about it was as if this was unique and, and special because it's the way we are. And mm -hmm. we're like them. And, and we're descended from this group of people instead of others that didn't come up with the Parthenon. And it also means that we now value certain kinds of things more than others. Not because they're better, but because it's what defines us. So we talked about the, the shortage of history or the lack of history in Canada compared to, say, Greece, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the French and English have only been in Canada for 400 years or so. 
Um, but the reason we think that way is because oral history and cultures and traditions, the kinds of things that are um, much more prevalent in, say, in certain indigenous cultures, we just think are like primitive or not mm -hmm. as good as written histories because that's what the Greeks and Romans did. Uh, so it, it does really shape a lot of how we think about history and we think about what history is interesting and what's important. I mean, if you build the Parthenon, does that mean there's something about your culture that's superior to, to a culture that, that doesn't build permanent buildings with marble or brick? Um, you know, that that's something I think we should think about. No, and that's uh, that was exactly the point that I, I kind of wanted to get in here today, I think, because that's uh, a really important um, way of, of making sure that we're thinking about those things in that sense. In, in, the, in the sort of um, Howard Zinn's People's History of the uh, uh, United States kind of idea, that was a book for me that meant a lot in, that, in, in doing the exact same way, in that this was the history that we're shown because this is what's in the books, but the reality is there was history there before and that uh, you know a lot of people uh, went through a lot in order for what we see as history to exist. Um, but we need to make sure that we're looking at all of those histories. And I think you also touched on a point in there as well that um, the Greek were the easy ones because they looked like us for us to look at as the ones that, oh, yeah, it all came from there. But definitely right. it didn't in the same way, um, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces. Uh, you know, the hero sure. story has been structured throughout time and, and, and grown. And, and that comes from from that. And I think another thing that you said in there that I found really interesting is the the dark, the, mid, the dark ages being in the middle there, um, because to me and this coming back to, you know, rock, rock and roll, you know, uh, we have this perception of music that is made in the 50s because we weren't born in the 50s. So we listen to it in a different way than the people that were there to create it. Um, sure. So when you have a renaissance that comes forward and looks at all of this stuff in its perfect beauty, because it had all of that space, but was not there when it was what was happening, you know, uh, what comes out of it is not exactly like what was there because of that. And I think that was kind of what you were uh, speaking to as well. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the analogy with 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 um, music is a good one. I mean, what what's the term we use for music that comes from the 50s, 60s and 70s? It's classic Classics. rock. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the same term we use for classical Greece and Rome. And what classical means is it's a standard mm -hmm. that everything else is measured against. And so, you know, you'll hear a band today, for example, like Greta Van Fleet, and people say they're good because they're a lot, they sound like Led Zeppelin. And you can't question whether or not Led Zeppelin is any good. Um, I mean, I'm not, they are, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, to judge something, you know, a, a, as being valuable because it resembles or is, is, is based on something we've decided is the standard. Uh, that's exactly what we do with classical Greece and Rome. And so if someone writes a poem, is it good because it's like a poem that a Greek or Roman would have written? Or, you know, should we judge it with it in a different way? How did the Greeks and Romans think about their own culture at the time, as you, mm -hmm. as you brought up with, you know, how did someone who, who, who saw Elvis perform for the first time <laughs> is obviously going to interpret what's happening, uh, and Elvis himself... Yeah. Uh, much differently than someone who's now looking back and saying, well, this is like the birth of rock and roll and that and that sort of thing. And uh, any of us born after Elvis passed prefer to see 
thin, beautiful, young Elvis more than we well, like to see later on Elvis, right? Late stage Vegas Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and again, the, the you know, uh, now there are more and more documentaries. I think of um, the brilliant documentary um, Under the Influence uh, about uh, Keith Richards, mm-hmm. um, where we're, we're, we're looking at and exploring the African-American roots of Rolling Stones music and the fact that they were completely open about the fact that they were essentially doing African-American music styles uh, and popularizing them. Uh, And Elvis was doing a similar thing. And so, you know, today uh, when uh, we're mourning the death of Aretha Franklin, I think it's a good day to think about the different musical influences that people had on, um, you know, Franklin was, of course, famous in her own right, but Mm -hmm. but that that influenced people like Elvis and people like the Rolling Stones and never were as famous as them. Uh, but Elvis and the Rolling Stones wouldn't have been what they were without them, and and so uh, uh, Homer's Iliad's the same in the, yeah. in the, the same way, I think. And uh, and then when we look at other aspects of of Greek society that were all um, you know always talked about often, especially as we mentioned politics as yep. one thing, um, is there parts of that that we um, that we may glorify more than we probably should, or is there parts of that that we should be looking at more? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, let's talk about democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if we think about, I talk about this a lot with my students, but um, if we think about the United States, mm-hmm. especially, um, which, you know, given that it might be undergoing certain struggles now, um, you know, until very recently, most people would have considered the world's greatest, or if, if not the greatest, one of the world's greatest democracies. The idea that the people have the right to vote, I mean, in the United States, you actually vote for dog catchers and things yeah. like this. I mean, you vote for everything uh, much more than we do in Canada hmm. uh, and many other uh, countries that are called democracies. The founders of the of the American political system, those who wrote the Constitution, um, you know, people like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, you know, the kinds of people that show up on the money now, uh, they hated democracy. Uh, they thought democracy was just terrible. Um, they thought it was mob rule. And so they looked to classical Athens at some terrible things that the Athenian democracy did, like execute Socrates, you know, the greatest philosopher mm-hmm. who ever lived. And they thought, we don't want to have the people completely unchecked and able to just vote for whatever they want. That's the kind of thing that democracies do. They're violent. They're uh, tyranny of the majority, all of these kinds of things. And so they based their system of government on the Romans uh, that had a republic, you know, small mm-hmm. r republic. Uh, and so very deliberately, they weren't a democracy. And so when we think about, you know, America being a democracy or Canada being a democracy, we're not talking about the same thing that yeah. the ancient Athenians, for example, uh, would have talked about. Um, and so, it, you know, so that that would be one that we need to look at. Um we have what's called a representative democracy. So we don't represent ourselves. We vote for people to go and represent us on our behalf in, you know, whether it's in Edmonton or whether it's in Ottawa. Uh, and if we don't like them, we vote for someone else to represent us, right? Whereas democracy meant every citizen, uh, which in Athens was just adult males mm-hmm. uh, who uh, were born free as Athenians, um, went and got to vote themselves um, and got to deliberate and got to debate. That's something that we would just 
first of all, it'd be, be practically impossible. You've got a country of 35 yeah. million people, you can, let alone 300 million people in the United States. You can't do that. Um, but it also meant that the people could do things that were against the Constitution, were against the law. They could say, well, a majority has decided this, and we're the people, we get to do whatever we, we want. And yeah. that isn't necessarily a good way to have stability and a good way to have just things um, legislated. Uh, so we need to be more careful about what democracy really means, um, what it what it represents, and, and how it could be done effectively. Now, I'm not saying we do it effectively in Canada mm -hmm. either, um, but to say that, you know, to thank the Athenians for democracy, uh, we're not really talking about the same, same thing. Hmm. Uh, and I think, I think uh, that touches on an interesting thing that I think a lot of us, language-wise, a lot of words that we use a lot uh, don't mean the same thing to a lot of people. You know, sure. the definitions of a lot of things now, it seems that people have other ideas of what freedom means. And if we can't agree mm -hmm. on what the idea of what freedom means, how do we start a conversation? Uh, well, is, is it a need for more language? It's a need for more careful language. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's another point. The Greeks would consider us completely unfree. Yeah. Um, they would see us as being, as giving up our freedom by not representing ourselves, ourselves. by not participating in our government, by just letting somebody in Ottawa do it for us. Uh, they would say that's not what free people do. Uh, so there's at, at heart, there's lots of ways to think about freedom, but there's two basic ones, uh, and this comes out of the Enlightenment and periods like this. But you have what we would call negative liberty, which means you don't have any constraints on you. Mm -hmm. You're basically free to do whatever you want without the state or the government or a religious institution or something else kind of forcing you to do something. So that's just the freedom from, uh, you know, constraints from laws, that kind of thing. Um, that's what we think about as freedom. If you're free, it means you can do what you want. You don't have to go to the legislature if you don't want to. You know, you know, as long as you're obeying the laws, as long as you're, you know, paying your taxes and doing some basic things, you're free. You're free to buy whatever kind of car you want or not have a car. You're free to shop where you want. You're free to eat what you want. Nobody's telling you what to do within reason. Um, the Greeks had a different concept. They would, we would call that positive liberty. And so it's not a freedom from something. It's a freedom to do something. And so they saw themselves as free because they were free to do their duty, to be citizens, to participate in government, um, to be active Athenians. And so that's what they thought freedom was. And so people that didn't have democracy like you had in Athens didn't have freedom because they, they just they, were, they had no place in society and governing it, no ownership in society. And, and so they weren't free because of that. Uh, so Athenians looking at us, seeing us completely give up our political activities, um, would have thought, you know, you've given up your freedom in order to be comfortable or in order to do what you want, which isn't what freedom is supposed to be about. So, it, you know, I think that's worth thinking about uh, as, a, as a concept of freedom. Like, do citizens of a, of a society, should we have obligations as citizens? And does that mean we're less free if we don't? I, uh, so a lot of people think about these things. Uh, and and it, it, if we don't change the way we view the world or the way we do things, we should at least think about them so we can appreciate more what it is we mean when we say, you know, this is a free country, for yeah. example. 
Well, and that's just it. I mean, you know, Canada says, ah, we're a free country. And America says, ah, we're a free country. And those are two very different com- concepts. And we're our closest neighbors. You know, all European countries would, uh, you know, most European countries would consider themselves to be free countries. Very different systems than we have here. Very different right. educational systems than we have here. Uh, to me, uh, having universal health care is, it makes me feel like a freer person. Because so you're know, freer not to worry about going bankrupt if you get, yeah. you know, need to do chemotherapy, for example. Yeah. Whereas the Americans would say you're not free because you don't get to choose to buy health insurance or not, uh, and you don't get to choose which, you know, chemotherapy practitioner mm-hmm. you're going to pay, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get it done, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I would be frightened to even have that choice in front of me, <laughs> to be right, honest well, with you. You know, like. You know, I, 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 to have that covered by the government personally. Right? Yeah, I prefer somebody to tell me, like, this is the guy you're going to want to talk to about getting this done. And I'll go, all right, you know. Now, they don't get it right every, you know, 100% of the time. But I think, to me, I, I, that's what I enjoy. But do I just enjoy that because that's what I've grown up in? And, uh, you know, is that is that the way uh, is that the way a lot of us have gone? We're just used to what we're used to. And instead of, you know, this is the right way to do it. Uh-huh. And, and the Greeks had a lot of interesting things to say about that, actually, really? about the idea that we tend to think that our own way of doing things and that our own society and our own customs are the best ones. Yeah. And sometimes they are, maybe. Maybe, you know, socialized medicine the way we have it in Canada is better than it is in the United States, uh, not just because we're more used to it. Um, but you can't really know that it's better until you've actually thought about it until you've thought about things that are different from yours. So Herodotus, the uh, we call him the father of history, you know, the first you know, historian who wrote an extensive history, of, and he wrote about the Persian Wars. He said that every single culture in the world, even the ones most opposite from each other, are always going to say, if pressed, that their own culture is the best. Yeah. You know, so if you sit six different people in the room with six completely different cultures and say, and and, and, and lay out all the cultures and then say, which one is the best? All six are going to say that their own is the best. Um, they, 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 there's similar concepts. Other Greeks said things that, you know, if, uh, you know, horses, for example, um, invented gods, the gods would look like horses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like, you know, Greek gods look like men and women. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's this idea that things that look like us and look like ourselves are automatically the best things and the greeks were actually you know some greeks at least were well aware of that that idea and tried to poke holes in it that's what socrates did he walked around athens finding people who were supposed to be the most brilliant and influential and important people in the city and he would just poke holes in all of their ideas he would just be like well is that really what justice is and 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 just show that all of the athenians preconceived notions were all actually based really on nothing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they didn't know nearly as much as they thought they knew. In fact, probably they knew nothing. Uh, and so that is a contribution uh, to, uh, you know, to thought that the Greeks uh, championed. And uh, I think it's not a bad one to, to bring back this idea of you can't know for sure something is better until you've thought about other things all the other ones yeah a a great idea is a well-challenged idea i like to think you know like you've got a every idea that you have is it it must be tested if you just believe things blindly then really is it the best way to go and and you will and and you might come back to the same beliefs but they will be stronger because you know they're true or truer 
than something else because you've considered uh, and and thought about where they're weak and, and where other ideas might have merit, that kind of thing. But then I think that would be why many would argue that science would be a stronger way for to lead us than, say, religion. Uh, but was... Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a fraud issue. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's a very that's a very politically charged mm -hmm. question. Um, but I think also that has a lot to do with a misunderstanding of what religion is and yeah. a misunderstanding of what science is. Um, you know, so and that comes from both sides, scientists Absolutely. and religious types. Um, you know, when, when we consider that a lot of the world's greatest scientists were very religious people, mm -hmm. uh, at least until recently, would give you pause when you automatically say that that the relig a religious person can't be a scientific person. Um, my favorite uh, thinker, my you know, if I was going to say who my favorite, you know, kind of historical philosopher is, it would be Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you know, in the, the in the in the high Middle Ages rather than the classical period, and he was famous for bringing together faith and reason. And he, his most famous contribution, you know, if we can na narrow it down to one, is the, uh, and he's basing this on Aristotle, actually, so it does get back to the classical world, is that faith is reasonable. And there are many things of religious belief, for example, that you can demonstrate just by reason without having things revealed to you by God um, or having to blindly accept something. You can actually and should be encouraged to be a philosopher about these things and to think critically and use your reason. And so, um, no, you know, too many people don't follow that advice now. And again, both scientists and, you know, religious types who think that, you know, you just have to believe something and you shouldn't put things to the test. Um, religious people have never historically actually taught that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, so again, it's, a, it's, it's another incident or incidents when we need to be careful about our language and, and careful about getting it right that you know faith and reason actually at least in the middle ages and uh, were completely compatible things yeah. uh, and i don't think there's any reason to just assume that they're not uh or that they're doing the same thing uh, anymore and it seems to me a lot of the especially the most the most thoughtful religious leaders are very open-minded like right i i mean if you look at Pope Francis, yeah. for example, he's got a master's degree in chemistry. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, faith and science are incompatible would, you know, on its face kind of fall apart when you consider, like, you know, probably the most prominent person of faith in the world today is a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that's, uh, I think it's people, yeah, the, you know, working in education, um, you hear a lot of people, and a lot of people say this to me all the time on Twitter, that you're you're not teaching people, you're you're not educating them, you're indoctrinating them. You know, you should be talking. You know, I I I don't think that I do that in class, but in any case, the most effective religious teachers, the most effective any kind of teachers, allow people that they're teaching to think critically and carefully about what they're being taught, and then when you when you arrive at what you think is the truth you'll have much more ownership over it. You will have a much firmer grasp and appreciation for it than if you just sort of accepted it uh, without thinking. And I don't think good religious leaders advocate that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah, I saw that actually on Twitter today that somebody 
was mentioning indoctrination once again uh to you and i was like well, no. i mean this is like a i think this should be i think they see this thing kind of thing in like fortune cookies right yeah. like you know that's not education that's indoctrination it's a nice slogan um you know and and i get why they would say that um because you know i do have political opinions mm-hmm. and, and and i do think some forms of evidence and some questions and some uh authorities are more reliable than others and yeah. uh, but i mean anyone who's ever taken one of my classes from the largest class to the smallest discussion section knows that i'm totally happy to encourage and always encourage discussion about difficult ideas yeah. i want the students to be able to think about these things for themselves and have their own ideas to challenge what i say that's completely fine it happens all the time uh but you know being a university professor it's my responsibility not to just set up an issue blindly yeah. uh, but to set it up you know in such a way that what people who have thought about this issue carefully uh, what they say about it is you know known to the students and and that they know the context of certain questions and things mm-hmm. and so that the discussion can actually be um, informed and productive well, and we don't want to just throw things out and go, well, this is what this person said, but it right. may or may not be true. <laughs> and it may or may not be this, and it may or may not be that. I, I still think, I don't know, um, there seems to be a lot of argument these days about the fact that we should just, that there should be no opinion. Like, it's either all opinion or no opinion. It's like everybody, right. it's like, I think we all have to make sure that we just have informed opinions and thoughtful conversations. Well, you know, I, it was actually my father who, who, who frequently said, or says still, um, you know, too often someone will say, you know, every opinion is valid, mm. which is, of course, not true. Yeah. Or it's it, at least not true that every opinion is equally valid. Every yeah. single person in the world in every circumstance is entirely entitled to have their own opinion. But obviously, if I'm talking about black holes, Stephen Hawking's opinion is going to be more valid than mine (laughs) about what makes what a black hole consists of in the mathematical operations that are at play and things like this. And so I think, you know, that's where there's a little bit of we're talking past each other. Um, You know, and and, and when it comes to, you know, ancient Greece, I publish things about ancient Greece. I I send things in that are rejected uh, to be published and I have to rethink and, and, Mm -hmm. and revise things. But, you know, when it comes to say ancient Greece, Someone who is a professional historian of ancient Greece, their opinion might carry more weight than, you know, someone who watched a History Channel documentary one day. Uh, You know, it's a a similar kind of thing. But I should also, you know, while I say that, be open to having my opinion changed and my Mm -hmm. outlook changed by what a student says in class. And that happens all the time. Um, You know, and, and that's actually one of the most interesting and rewarding parts of teaching when i come away from a class after someone asks a question that even at first might sound a little bit ridiculous and i think you know what they, they <laughs> i should look into this what, what, yeah. why is that you know that sort of thing but that's what makes it exciting we're all we're all learning I, I, you yep. know um we need to just make sure that we are showing the proper i think i i believe that we're showing the proper respect for those that have put the time into 
their particular fields. And that's a part of why I'm doing what I'm doing and, and trying to speak to people in their particular fields about what they're about and where they're going. Um, and then you, you have thoughtful questions and thoughtful discussions. I think that that's all potential and possible. And I think right. that we have too many short discussions where we, we like to, we like to argue. <laughs> it almost seems yeah. like, people... well, I mean, and Twitter's terrible for that, right? I mean, you have now 240 whole characters or 280 or whatever it is. And, and, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, discussion like we're having, mm. I think is a much more useful. <laughs> well, that's what I think. That's my thing. I think that this is the type of thing you can tell that it's, I don't know. I think there's a lot of dehumanization in, in, in Twitter because well, even... it's hard when you're talking with someone for an hour yeah. to, you know, just come away with you know preconceived ideas about this person. Mm. It's, it's, you have to encounter them as real people with real ideas uh, in a much richer way than you do. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody mm -hmm. uh, as trying to one up each other uh, in a kind of tweet war. I, uh, yeah, I have to be very careful on Twitter and I backed away from a lot of it because I, I can feel that, you know, when you get that sort of feeling of like, I just want to win this and that's not what it's about. It's not what it should be about. Right. It should, it, you know, I, but well, you, within, you know, like there are some opinions that are just I know. so outrageous. Right. But but I get, you know, if you're if you're talking about, you know. To what extent does, you know, a, a certain tax policy, you know, <laughs> you're talking about policy issues, you're talking about approaches to, to government approaches to uh, culture, uh, things like this. You're not going to get it done in a tweet. Yeah. Well, and. Then you got things like flat Earth, <laughs> and then those are the ones you go. Ah, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna back down on this flat Earth idea, because yeah. the Greeks figured it out a while ago, and I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's you know, yeah, it's one of those things. If you're teaching a geology class or a geography class, giving space to an idea like flat Earth ideas is just wasting time, mm -hmm. and it's taking away from the students' time where they should be learning about, you know the actual world <laughs> uh, in, in, a, in an effective way. So, no, I, I, I would agree with that, definitely. Um, we are getting fairly close to uh, ra uh, the end of our hour together. I do want to ask okay. you, uh, just to sum a few things up, um, what do you think is, is a couple of things that we can take away from ancient Greece and how they progressed and look at that as ways that we can move forward as a culture. Well, this is, a, you know, and it's a great, important question. Uh, I think more often than not, the Greeks um, serve as an example of what not to do. Yeah. Um, so I think the idea of everybody in a society having an equal right and to participate in the running of that society, to have an equal say in, and an equal ownership stake in running the community. Um, that's an idea that comes from democratic Athens that I think it's great. The mm -hmm. idea that we shouldn't just surrender all of our government decisions to people who happen to have better educations or, you know, we should listen to them on key issues, of course. But, you know, one of Socrates's main points was, you know, who are the who are the, you know, we have experts on shipbuilding and things like this, but who's the expert on virtue? Who's the expert yeah. on, on, on governing a city well? And, and, and the, the fact is, um, even though Socrates himself probably wasn't a Democrat, 
democracy had some neat ideas about the collective decisions of the body of people um, might tend to be more just than even the best educated people running things in a certain way. That's something we should at least consider. Now, where there's a negative example, the Greeks excluded women, the Greeks ex had slaves, the Greeks ex excluded foreigners. And so can we include everybody and still have a functioning society? Uh, I would hope so. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that we should be striving towards uh, more and more. Uh, so that would be one thing. The other would be to just question assumptions, to question things. Um, but not just – I keep coming back to Socrates, but, but he didn't question things just for the sake of questioning yeah. them. Um, the, idea, the point of philosophy – and here's, I guess, my other big point – would be to live a good life, mm -hmm. to live a just life, to live well, to understand yourself, but also to understand others and how to live well as one person with other persons. Uh, and so when you're having discussions and when you're questioning assumptions and when you're challenging ideas, the idea shouldn't just be to win a debate. The idea shouldn't even just be a kind of like intellectual stimulation, which can be fun and rewarding in itself. But it should be to get closer to the truth of something. It yeah. should be to, to, to figure out ways to actually do better as a person living with other persons. And so... If the discussion isn't geared to that direction, isn't you know aiming at actually making yourself better, um, but it's just a kind of intellectual game, yeah. uh, I don't think that's in the spirit of what philosophy is. And so that would be another uh, kind of thing to take away from the Greeks. So how can we – it all comes into the same thing. How can we – what does it mean to be a human being and how can we live as a human being with other human beings in a more just uh, in a more appropriate way. The Greeks didn't always have the right answers to those questions, but they did ask them. Uh, and I think we should continue asking them and challenging ourselves to abide by them and to, to progress along those lines. Perfect. I think that's a great uh, cap on the conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, how do people, first off, what, is there anything you would recommend that people read, take in, watch in order to get a better grasp on some of the concepts that we've talked about in this conversation? I think the, the the place to start, actually, uh, which is an interesting would be an interesting thing to read, is Plato's Apology, and Apology means a defense speech. It's only twenty pages long or so, but it's Plato's account of how Socrates defended himself out of the trial and and why he asked questions. I think that's a that's a, probably if you're going to read an ancient text, yeah. it's accessible and it's probably as good as it's going to get um, in terms of um, getting across. What made him tick, and 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 he tells you a lot about ancient Greece. Uh, that would be one place to start. Another, you know, this is about ancient Rome. I love the first season of HBO's Rome. Yeah. Um. I I think you know for for people to understand the ancient world and what it was really like, it was grungy, it was dirty, it was you know violent. I mean, yeah. I I think uh, the atmosphere of that show. If you're gonna watch something. Um, you know, from Hollywood or HBO or anything like that, uh, it would be the first season. The second one's okay uh, of HBO's Rome. Um, and one more thing, there's a couple of novels that just came out uh, written by someone named Madeline Miller. Okay. Uh, the first one's called The Song of Achilles, and the second one is called Circe, C-I-R-C-E. And these are historical novels about figures from Greek mythology 
She's got a master's in classics, but they're brilliant. They've been they're New York Times bestsellers. They're just wonderful novels to read. Cool. Uh, and so to get into the ancient world and Greek mythology, uh, you could you could you, know, you couldn't do much better uh, than starting there. Cool. Uh, and if people wanted to get more of you, uh, is, is yep. Twitter the place to do that? Uh, a lot of my stuff's on Twitter. So I write a lot for uh, the Made by History blog on the Washington Post. Cool. Um, you know, I publish in, in various other things. Uh, I wrote for Maclean's last week on statues, and nice. ancient and modern. Uh, so I, I typically post links to those things on Twitter, which is at uh, Matthew A. Sears. Um, but anyone who has, I often get emails from people, uh, Matthew A. Sears at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to, you know, put links to that, that's fine. Uh, questions about, you know, resources and classics. What kinds of books should I read? You know, just questions about Greece or Rome. I'm always happy to get emails and, and to, to talk with people that way as well. Or you can send me my DMs are open on Twitter. Nice. Uh, so you can send those as well. Awesome. Well, once again, Matthew, thank you very much for taking the time to sit and speak with me here today and spend an hour with me. I really, I absolutely appreciate that. One last curveball question, because I know cool. you like music and I love music. What's your favorite record? Your Desert Island record. Wait, uh, no, I wish you were here, Pink Floyd. That's a I great think Shine one. On You Crazy Diamond, that whole track is, if I had written that, I wouldn't have to do anything else in my life. Cool. How about you? Uh, Jeff Buckley's Grace. Always okay. mine. Yeah, yep. I love that record. That's From start to finish. Well, once again, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I appreciate you having, having you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure, and thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much for listening to the very first episode of Wander with Andrew Wilcox. We're going to have a new episode every Wednesday after this. Uh, try to put that up around midnight. But yeah, whenever you wake up, download it, give it a listen, or whatever. That's the great thing about a podcast. You can listen to it at any time. You can also support the podcast by giving us a review on iTunes if you dug it. If you didn't dig it, just email me personally. Tell me what you didn't like. I don't mind at all. You can email me at andrew at wanderpodcast.ca. I always want to get better. That's what this podcast is all about. You can also support us through Patreon if you wish to give us a couple of bucks. If you really enjoyed the episode, if it helped you out, if you made you smarter. Uh, once again, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Matthew Sears for uh, being willing to be on the podcast. That was super awesome. I really appreciate it. So can't wait to uh, hear from you if you want to. Tell me what you thought of the podcast. If not, well, maybe we'll see you next week.